I don't know how you manage to get excited about Christmas. I hope you do. I hope it's, it's an ongoing theme for you. But preachers particularly have difficulty because, you know, one year is not so bad and the fifth year is not so bad. But, you know, 15 years and every year you're getting ready. You're preaching. You know, well, what am I going to preach about that I haven't already said or spoken about? But it is, it is difficult. How do you, how do you keep it together and, and, and get excited and focused on what is important about the Advent season? Now, I said it. Do, do you celebrate the Advent of Christ? Now that, you said, oh, he just said a Lutheran word, didn't he? Um, Advent, my goodness, that's, it, at least in, in my tradition, I didn't hear about that until I was an adult. Um, Advent, though, has become a, a way to help me get ready for Christmas. It really is. Advent literally means the coming or the beginning. And in this case, the beginning, the coming of Christ. And we talk about the first advent versus the second advent, which would be the second coming. And the first advent in the normal um, liturgical calendar is the, is, is the beginning to think about Christmas. The, it, it's how we put it together. And the first week, which is today, on the advent calendar, is... A focus on the prophecies. What does the scripture have to say about the coming of Jesus? And why should we get all, uh, all tingly inside over uh, the prophecies? And, and uh, some, I mean, we've been through some of that before, you know, uh, in, in, in the prediction of Bethlehem, of Ephrathah being the birthplace and I want us to take a, a little different road to the stable in Jerusalem this year. And since I have the privilege of addressing you this morning, I get this week and next week to, um, to do what I want to. Isn't that wonderful? And uh, I, I hope it won't be too painful for you. But I want us to think about the presentation of the Lamb. Now, now, don't check out on me. Don't close your mental notebooks here and say, he's confused. He thinks it's Easter. Uh, no, I don't think it's Easter. But I, I want us to think about the presentation of the Lamb in terms of thinking about part one, the beginning, and part two, you have to, you know, I have to ask Pastor Paul to invite me to give you part two. Because it's too much to include in one message this morning. So, I'm going to tell you uh, up front that there are ten major points. <laughs> or, uh, maybe eyeballs for holding down the tent. But, um, I'm going to give all the ten of those to you, but I'm only going to preach or speak about five of them. Okay? So, the, the last five will come the next time I have an opportunity to... Uh, uh, to address you, preferably sometime around Easter. So, what, what can we say and where should we begin? I, I think it would be good if we began by reading some scripture together. And I'm going to ask that we look at First Peter. Is that fuzzy to my eyes only or are you okay? A, a, a tad fuzzy? Let's see. You know, A or B, A or B. Is a... Okay, let's read this out loud together. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from our forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in him, raised him from the dead, and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now, the reason I'm having you read that is because 
this becomes one of those eye bolts that we put in for the foundation and anchoring the tent in that we're not going to spend a great deal of time on, but this is, this is equivalent, in, in my view, to having a focus on Isaiah 53, which we will talk about today. And the next time we get to part two, we're going to focus more on this. But I want you to look at a couple of parts of this. Look at this section right here. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That has a major consequence for the birth of Christ, as does the fact that he was chosen before the found, or the creation of the world or the foundation of the world and was revealed in these last times for your sake. Also, this is quite interesting, that in verse 21, right here, "...and so your faith and hope are in God." I think it's quite telling that hope is introduced in this text for the first time in regard to the Lamb. So, you kind of put that aside as we move through this message this morning. And we'll think in terms of how, how this fits together. If we're going to think about the manifestation or the presentation of the Lamb, where are we going to go? How far back can we find Evidences that the lamb would be brought forward, that there would be a lamb involved in the cradle, in the nativity scene, in Bethlehem. And, and where is this going to take us? Now, when I look at Scripture, I, I, I'm, one of my favorite Christmas texts is found in Hebrews chapter 1. And uh, I've preached on that before, but I, I love that passage. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us, how? By His, His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, what did He do? He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. When I look at this passage, I say, well, uh, where is the Christmas story? Where's the Christmas story? And then I see, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Hmm. There are many texts in Scripture that point us towards what God was doing in the Incarnation. And one of the themes that runs throughout Scripture, and I hope that you'll agree with me by the time I'm finished at least, is that one of those themes is, is the truth about the Lamb of God and how the Lamb of God fits into the story that we call the story of Christmas. Well, here is my brief overview. And I, I want us to think about if you can arrive at the same point that John did when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If that's what you walk out of here today saying, wow, what a great Savior. He is the Lamb of God who has taken away my sin. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Then we've achieved something really good. We're going to talk first about these ten stackpoles. And I told you I promised not to preach on all ten of them this morning. Um, you will be hungry by the time I get through that. The first one is in Genesis chapter 4. And it is the account of Abel. I'm going to move my microphone down a little bit so I don't keep... Up? Up is better. All right. Uh, keep, you know, powdering the microphone here. Um, it's about Abel and his lamb. We'll come back 
and finished tell you more about this. And then in Genesis chapter 22, you remember uh, the account of Abraham taking his son Isaac to the mount to offer him up as a sacrifice to God. And this incident is uh, evidence here that Abraham is expecting uh, somehow to find the sacrifice, a lamb perhaps, who will take the place of Isaac. And then in Exodus chapter 12, uh, there is the Passover lamb that is slain on the very night before the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. A, a lamb was to be taken and to be sacrificed and the blood placed upon the doorpost and lintel. And then in the, the book of Leviticus, there is the sin offering of the lamb which Israelites offered on the altar of sacrifice side of the tabernacle. We'll come back and address that as well. And then coming to what uh, some scholars have said is the high point or the Mount Everest of the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, where we see this picture in one of the servant passages, this is the iniquity of us all. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning with verse 16 through the end of, the, of uh, chapter uh, 136, there is the Lamb that is announced by John with these words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in Acts chapter 8, there is the incident of the Ethiopian official who is found re reading and driving. I, I must confess, I got to graduate school reading and driving. It's not safe, but it can be done. Um, in his case, he was uh, driving a chariot and reading. And uh, God had Philip uh, do a sprint down, down the road from Gaza to Ethiopia. And caught up with him and said, you know, what are you reading? And he said, well, um, I'm, I'm a, got as far as Isaiah 53, but I don't know what he's talking about. And so Philip... Um, described what it was that he was reading about and described him as the Lamb who is Jesus, the Messiah. And then in, the, uh, in 1 Peter 18-21, through 21, you read it with me just a few moments ago, it is quoted by way of introduction in which it tells that we were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as of a Lamb who is without blemish. And without spot. In the book of Revelation chapter 5. The lamb is enthroned. The lamb is being enthroned. They're looking for someone who is worthy to open the book. Do you remember the passage? And they, they see one who appears to be as a lamb who has been slain from the foundation of the world. And then finally, the last of the ten... In Revelation chapter 21 through 22, there is the final vision of the apocalypse in which the Lamb is seen reigning in the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth. So these are the ten. Let's go back and see what they tell us about the Lamb. Genesis chapter 4. Uh, verses 3 through 7a. Listen to what the text tells us. For they tell us that the Lamb was absolutely necessary. The Lamb was necessary. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the, of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering. He did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you but you must master it. This has been a very troubling passage for 
many Bible students, as it's been difficult for them to understand what it means to offer God what God wants and what God requires. The concept is, is quite human for, from our perspective. And we say, well, you know, I just, I, I'll offer God what I've got, what I think he ought to have. Um, on one occasion, uh, our youngest son was wanting to date a girl. This one was in high school, and I, I've never, I've never <laughs> had this happen to any uh, anybody else that I know of. But the the girl's father wanted to talk to my son, interviewing. What are your intentions? <laughs> what do you plan to do? How long will she be out? And so he he was given the whole thing. I mean, they went, two kids going to school, a Christian school together. <laughs> so, and um, so anyway, we came back. I said, well, Tim, how do you think, think things went? He said, oh, I, I think I pretty much told him what he wanted to hear. <laughs> now, I think that was part of Cain's problems. He, he decided that he wanted to negotiate with God on his own terms. Now, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 5, tells us that it, it was that God was requiring an offering of blood. But Cain decided that he would offer God some of his grain. It wasn't shabby grain. It was just not what God wanted and what God had asked for. It's a part of this negotiation process that we humans get pretty adept at. We rationalize. Well, God doesn't want that from me. Surely not. I'll give him some of this. You know, I'll, 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 give, him, I'll give him a tenth. Or I'll give him five percent. Or, I'll, you know, and we go on. and Well, no, I can't give him my life. I, I know I, I, I'm guilty of that. For many years, I, I felt the call of God in my life. And I said, no, I, I'm not going there. I've got plans. I, I, I need to, to take a different road. And so I tried it. And I don't walk with a limp all the time, but I know what it's like <laughs> to walk because you've wrestled with God and you come out the loser. I discovered that there's great joy in doing things God's way. And at the very beginning of this, in this very first instance of, of Scripture in Genesis chapter 4, we see that God has told these two brothers what is to be accepted. Abel's sacrifice accepted. Cain's not accepted. What was, what was apparent here was that there was a sacrifice that was to be made. Blood was to be offered. A lamb was to be killed. It was absolutely necessary to, to what God's purposes were. And then we turn to Genesis chapter 22, a passage that is perhaps even more familiar to you. Abraham took the wood, verse 6, from the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he carried, he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, a father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. What is remarkable about this passage, uh, and there are many things that are remarkable about it, is that God is the one who will provide. He is the one who provides the lamb. He is the one who provides the acceptable sacrifice. God himself will provide the lamb. I think it's quite remarkable that one of the, the words that we have for describing God comes out of this passage. Have you in your life some, at some point ever said... When you're waiting upon God to deliver something that you've asked Him for, and you've said, He is Jehovah Jireh, 
I have. It means God himself will provide. God will provide. The Lord will provide what is needed. And here, this is the place that Abraham came back to and said, that that place needs a new name. Because God provided the the lamb, the, the ram in the thicket. I want to rename this place. This is Jehovah Jireh. It's good to have those places in our memory, isn't it? Where we know that God provided. There was just no way for us to pay that bill. There was, there was no way for us to get through that broken relationship, that dysfunctionality within the, the human race. And, and yet God provided the way through. He did it. Jehovah Jireh. One of the first counseling sessions I ever had with this particular issue. And if you pastor long enough, you'll get a lot of different kinds. This is a, a, a terribly messy uh, dysfunctionality of blended families. One with boys and one with girls. And the, the one with boys was the, the father involved and the, the mother had the girls. They decided to blend their families and before it was over, the story came out that the father of the boys was um, sexually involved with the oldest daughter. And um, the mother, rather than want to separate herself from that issue and protect her daughter, contributed to it by ignoring the, the, the problem, pretending it didn't exist. And it, it, it was literally sucking the life out of this 15-year-old daughter. And he, by the time it got resolved, he was already starting on the 13-year-old. And all the time, he was, he was pretending to be a lay preacher. It was messy. And I left that pastorate um, before that, that whole thing got resolved. And... And I thought, oh Lord, only you, only you could bring something good out of this. This, this is the, the biggest shambles of a mess I have ever seen. And, and I could just see the, the fragmentation of humanity going off in all directions. And about a year and a half after I left, this girl's about 18 by that time or 19, I got a wedding invitation that this 15-year-old who had been molested, now as a young woman, had found a mate. And uh, I was thrilled because I didn't think that day would ever come. I honestly didn't. I saw in that the provision of God. God will provide. I had tried to intervene. I brought professional counselors that made them available. And it just... I even wanted to, to work that man over with a little slugger. I thought that would help. Um, but none of it seemed to, to matter until I got out of the way. <laughs> it was part of God's provision, I think. And then through a lot of heartache, God provided. He provided. Well, God provides for us. Chapter 12 in this first Passover, there is protection provided. You remember the children of Israel were in Egypt and they were preparing to make their way out. God said, if you do what I tell you to do, the death angel will pass you by. You will slay a lamb. You'll gather your family. You'll slay the lamb. And you'll take the blood and you'll put it on the doorpost and the lentil. And I will pass over when I come through Egypt and all who have the blood on the doorpost, I will see it and I will not harm anyone inside. You stay inside when I pass through. And all through Egypt, there was wailing and, and, and anguish. And I dare say, even in the homes of unbelieving Jews, I cannot believe that everybody among the Jews believed God. In this congregation, will everyone respond the same way? I doubt seriously whether they would. And on any given day, I might make different choices too.
But in that instance, those who believed took the lamb and killed the lamb and applied the blood. And the emphasis is upon the protection of God because the animal was slain. The lamb was slain. And then in Leviticus chapter 16, I'm sorry, I keep looking down and blast you with my microphone feedback here. And now in, the, in this fourth instance, we have the lamb that is set forth in the book of Leviticus. In this third book from the hand of Moses, we have what is set forth as the obligations and duties of the priests. The priests were to represent the people to God and God to the people. That's kind of what your pastor does. He is a priest in that sense. He takes your cares and your worries and he takes them to God in prayer. And then he listens to God and sees what God has to say to you. It's a remarkable process. And um, I believe that God requires much of the vessel that he chooses to speak through. In this particular passage, we find that it is the character of the priest that God wants to define and develop. There is a a horribly awesome picture of what happens to the priesthood in the book of Malachi. God is going to be so fed up with Israel by the time Malachi is written that he's going to just shut down and say, I'm not going to talk to you people anymore. And for 400 years after the time of Malachi, he says nothing. Until a voice of one crying in the wilderness, named John the Baptist, comes saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. 400 years, the whole generational structure was swept aside in judgment. What was it God was saying to the priests? Had they paid attention to Leviticus and defined their character by the will of God and, the, and what God had to say to them, Malachi might never have been, been written. God says, I am, I am so tired of your lip service and you have no heart for me, you priests of, of Israel. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take the, the foul substance from the altar of God. This is, if you know anything about what happens at death, you know that the system just shut down and, and uh, the body fluids and the refuse is released and just, this is an, uh, a, not an attractive picture for what you might have in your mind about the, all, the offering of sacrifices upon the altar. The priests were to take this, which is not to be uh, allowed to be burned. It was to be taken outside of the of the whole uh, wall of Jerusalem and and buried in a place uh, of refuse. But God says, "I am going to take this refuse from the altar that that you have so little concern about, and I'm going to rub your face in it." You are priests who are unworthy to even call my name. And yet you pretend to be representatives, my representatives to the people. The Lamb, described here in Leviticus chapter 16, to be presented on the Day of Atonement is to be without blemish and without spot. He is to be pure as defined by God and accepted, therefore, as a sacrifice He is pointing to one who will come, who will be without blemish and without spot. Did we not read that in Peter? First Peter? Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. It will suffice us to read verses 6 through 8. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. 
And as a sheep before her shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off in the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. There is something quite remarkable in this passage. There is something that has not been yet revealed in this progression of a prophetic understanding of the, of the Lamb. I think you'll catch it if I go through the words carefully. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. By, depression, by, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off. You got it? It's the person. The lamb is now identified, Isaiah says. It's not an animal. It is a person. This lamb is a lamb so identified with God who delights in what God wants, who is holy and blameless and spotless before God. You see, even amidst the, the day of atonement, there, there was never a, a, an earthly lamb that was absolutely without flaw. They had to be, be declared flawless. They, the priest had to make them kosher. You know, and if you go down to the, you know, at any hospital where, the, where you get the chance to see the babies... And you say, aren't they all perfect? No, they're not all perfect. Some are just ugly. <laughs> you know, some of them got little pointy heads. And, uh, and some of them have lots of hair. Some have no hair. Some might poke themselves in the eye. And we declare them to be beautiful. <laughs> Do we not? And especially if you're the mom. <laughs> and the dad or the grandparent. They're just the most gorgeous thing you've ever seen. Well, imagine the priest who had to declare the lambs that were to be accepted for sacrifice. He declared them to be perfect, but they were not intrinsically perfect. And so, the lamb that was to be accepted came as a person. He is intrinsically perfect. Let's look at this again. The lamb in Genesis chapter 4 is necessary for a sin covering and therefore is a propitiation. The lamb that comes in Genesis 22 is a substitutionary lamb. Abraham was going to offer the sacrifice of his son, but God offered a substitute. And so... He comes, let me just back, I think I've got this in a little bit wrong order. We're, we're coming on it, here we go. Um, as a substitution. By the way, um, I hope, we're going to hold this one because I want you to have a clear understanding of what propitiation is. In, in Gen Exodus 12, it is the protection. Remember the, door, the blood on the doorposts? In uh, Leviticus, it is the absolution from guilt, from the one offered from the priest as well, from guilt. And in Isaiah 53, it is expiation that is in focus. Now, there is a difference between expiation and propitiation. Now, these are fanciful words. You know, that if you, if you probably have a conversation and start talking now until Christmas, you probably will never use either one of these words. Uh, but they're biblical words, they're theological words, and they describe something very significant. Propitiation really means covering. In the Ark of the Covenant, the, the Ark had two angels staring down with their eyes fixed upon the mercy seat on the Kapoor. The priest would come and take the blood from the sacrifice and with a hyssop, blood in a bowl, hyssop in his hand and, and dip it into the bowl and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Why? Because the, the law was inside or under the mercy seat. 
And God's eyes, symbolized by the two uh, angelic beings looking down upon the mercy seat, his eyes were then blocked from seeing the, the law once the blood was applied. And therefore, the sin was not taken out of the way, it was covered. It was covered. Well, what happened to the sin? It was held by God, but not done away with. Did the individual Israelite believe that his sin was dealt with? Yes. Could he function uh, believing that, that he had met with God and God said, Go, my, you know, I, I have dealt with this? Yes. But his sin was only being held. Expiation that comes in focus by the prophecy of Isaiah means that the sin is taken out of the way. It is dealt with permanently. As far as east is from west, God deals with this sin and he promises never to bring it back to, to, their, to their mind or their hearts again. That's what the new covenant is about in, in Jeremiah. The promise of a new covenant. He says, I will, I will write a new covenant upon their hearts, not upon stone tablets. And then what? And I will remember their sin no more. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? And, and it has to do with the Hebrew way of understanding what was, all, what, what was going on with time. The, when a, a Hebrew remembered something, he remembered God's presence, he remembered Israel going through um, the, the Red Sea. It wasn't just that he, he said, well, yeah, history tells me that that event took place back in, you know, whenever. It's that he believed when he brought it back to his mind, he was a participant in it. That's entirely different. Uh, one of my kids asked his mother once, he said, Mom, were you born closer to Abraham Lincoln or George Washington? And my mom, uh, his mom said, uh, well, son, if you put it like that, I guess it was Abraham Lincoln, but they didn't know him personally. But you see, the child has an ability to say, well, it's, time is not so much linear, it's, it's right here. It's not this way, it's, it's this way. And so, for him, history is, is now. What does he know about history? And so, when the Israelites believed that when they remembered something, they brought it back into their consciousness and they participated in the event. So, when God says, I will remember their sin no more, it means he has released it and, and, and he'll never, never, ever again call it back into remembrance. He's never going to hold it to our account. That's what expiation's about. And there's only one place where that takes place. There's only one event where expiation takes place. And it applies for those who came before the time of Christ and those who came after. Read the last couple of verses of chapter 11 of Hebrews. God having prepared something better for us. That's what it is. It's expiation. It's dealing with sin through the perfect Lamb of God who came and offered Himself for us. So you have propitiation, substitution, protection. And you have uh, the absolution from guilt. And you have here expiation. But there's more. The Lamb was necessary for sin covering. The Lamb in chapter 22 came as a, as a price, as a sacrifice for one person. Isaac. In Exodus 12, the Lamb came for one family. Remember how they gathered? And they slew the, they gathered his family, locked the doors, and, and took the blood and put it on the lentils. In Leviticus, it's the lamb for one nation. God was concerned about Israel. And the lamb was concerned about one nation. In Isaiah 53, the lamb 
was given for the elect of God, all of them, or should I say all of us. Well, I want to take just a short bunny trail here by way of application. Because if we don't ask the question, so what? (laughs) You go home and you say, well, you know, okay, we talked a little bit about the nature of the sin offering that was to be offered in the, the, the Lamb, but so what? Uh, Michael Card wrote a book a few years ago called Emmanuel. I grabbed it off the shelf a couple of weeks ago when I was looking at this, this particular uh, message. And it spoke to me, maybe it will to you. Listen to what he says. If people today would just look at the birth of Jesus straight on, They would be puzzled that we should celebrate the horrific birth of a baby who was born to die. The contradictions should be more than the world can take. If Christianity could just be seen for what it is, a paradox and a mystery, the beginning of that dirty stable, or the beginning in that dirty stable, is one of the greatest mysteries, the plainness, and greatness of Jesus, the grime and the glory. Wise men with gold in their hands and shepherds with sheep dung on their shoes. A smelly stable below and a shining star above. The birth of a gentle lamb who was the fiercest lion. Now, sometimes it takes our own children or another child to really help us understand profound truth. <laughs> Our daughter was uh, five or six years old. And she, she's still a happy, happy kid. At, <clears throat> she'll be, um, this is our last couple of weeks of being 39. <laughs> I, when she was 25, I, I called her. She was working in Chicago. I called her on the phone. I said, hi, honey. This is Dad. Uh, happy birthday. And I can no longer be your father. And she said, what are you talking about? I said, I am just too young to have a 25-year-old. <laughs> and uh, she said, oh, that. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, uh, Julie was, uh, she was a happy little kid. And she loved to sing. She had the sweetest little voice. And uh, we had music going all the time, especially at Christmas. We just we love music and she rounded the corner skipping through the house one day and I hear her singing Who's that baby lion? Who's that baby lion? Who's that baby lion? And I stopped in my tracks and I thought, Baby lion, what are we talking about here? And it was it was with that that immediately I went to one of our favorite albums and I realized uh, that this is in the, in the old days, folks. This is when, remember um, the vinyls? <laughs> you know, the, the records? Well, we had one from the uh, Baylor uh, BRH Choir where they had quite a bit of contemporary, that was contemporary then, uh, music. And there was a wonderful little song that, that we loved to hear, and it was called, uh, it went something like this, Straw is yellow, straw is soft, who's that baby lion near the loft? And it's about the Christ child. But it had a, it had a scratch right at that point. <laughs> who's that baby lion? Who's that baby lion? Who's that baby lion? And you had to actually go up and bump the needle. You know, to move it. And here she picked up on that. And I, I, I declare, you know, this kid is going to have a screwed up theology. <laughs> and then I thought, that is exactly right. He is lying as well. And it's in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, that it says that when they're looking for the Lamb who is worthy... To open the seals. They find one who looked, a lamb who looked as if he'd been slain from the foundation of the world. And he was 
a lion of the tribe of Judah. <laughs> I thought, out of the mouth of babes. So, our picture is an interesting picture, is it not? When we think of the end times, when, when the, the new earth and the new heavens are secured, it will be a time when the, the lamb lies down with a lion without fear of uh, one being a predator of the other. But here, even in the story that leads up to Christmas, the first one, the first advent, we have prophecy that tells us that there is a lion that is also a part of the, the mystery of the, of the lamb. And he is both. And the artist tries to capture these themes. On the one hand, you have the lamb of God dying upon a cross to take away the sins of the world. And in another, his, his life and ministry, his offer, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come to me. Who is that baby lion? Uh-huh, a lion indeed. And then, um, uh, last month, my wife and I were down in... Um, Montreat, North Carolina. We made a trip. We were staying with my sister-in-law up in the mountains above Silva. Not too far. Less than an hour to Montreat. Montreat is interesting because that's where Billy Graham retired. He still lives in the family home. And um, I was going to go down and give him some advice, but I never found him. Um, so we went to the Billy Graham um, uh, ministry center there, um, and it's a it's a marvelous place. Uh, it's it's kind of like a Moody Bible Institute for grown-ups who are too old to go to Moody, <laughs> uh, but they bring in um, speakers, you know, of of uh, national renown to come in and conduct uh, all kinds of of uh, of uh, leadership conferences and seminars, and I guess it's kind of hard to get in. I've talked to some people who said they're booked a year in advance. It's really a nice center, but as I toured the chapel, I was taken by this picture. It is, uh, it is a picture of the tombstone of Ruth Bell Graham. Now, you, you may not be able to read the dates. It says June 10, 1920 to June... 14th, 2007. And then uh, this part right down here is expression of Ruth Graham's funny bone. It says, end of construction. Thank you for your patience. Now, what is this at the top? It's Chinese. What does it mean? Why does she have it put there? Well, some of you may know that she is the daughter of missionary parents to China and was born in China. But what does this mean? What, what is the significance of these two characters that are, represent words? The one on the bottom means me. And the one on the top is the word for lamb. I was... I was looking at that and just, I thought, wow. And then I, I heard her explanation of it. She said she wanted it carved on her tombstone because when God looked down from heaven on this place where Ruth Bell Graham lay in her mortal, mortal body, she wanted God to see her covered by the Lamb. And to see the lamb first and to know that she was taken care of in the lamb. And one of the guys said, do you also know that the two words, when you put them together and make one word out of them, mean righteous? I thought, wow, isn't that fantastic? When you and I have met the lamb of God and have our sin taken care of, what are we declared? 
righteous. Righteous. His righteousness given to us because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It, friends, it doesn't get any better than that. That is the best Christmas gift of all. It is the Lamb of God coming to earth for us on our behalf that we might be one with the Father, that our sins might be dealt with eternally. I leave you with the Lamb. There is another part of this that needs to be finished around Easter time. <laughs> because these other passages like First Peter and the book of Acts chapter 8 and, and Revelation tell us even more of the glory that is caught up in who the Lamb is. Oh, let's go to the Father. Father God, what a joy is ours to be caught up in life with the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. And not just our sin, not just my sin, but the sin of the world. It is just too awesome for our, our small minds to, to fathom. And yet, in your word, we have seen that this lamb was absolutely necessary for our redemption. That he provides the substitute for us. That he provides protection that he, he comes to us to bring us into your family. That he comes to suffer for us in our place. And to bring us life and life eternal. Remind us, Father, as we move towards Christmas this year. That we have a gift that Paul described as an unspeakable I. He just couldn't find the words to describe it. This indescribable gift in Jesus. Thank you for the Lamb who was given for us. It's in His name that we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.